My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Ariel Berger. Ariel is a scholar, a artist, a poet, a rabbi, a professor, a nonprofit leader, and just I'm like smiling ear to ear because all of that are are expressions of of the multidimensionality, the playfulness, the openness, the rigor, the way that he weaves together all of these different identities into what I experience as a wonderfully coherent approach to life that is about inquiry and curiosity and compassion and generosity is so special. He's the author of a book called Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom. Elie Wiesel, who Ariel's book is informed by and inspired by, was perhaps one of the most important voices for the power of memory and witness to sustain and nourish and protect the parts of our our lives and ourself that are most important for who we are as a species. Ely was a Nobel Peace Prize winner in 1980s. He's authored over 57 books, including his seminal book, Night, which was based on his experiences as a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz and Buchenwald, which were concentration camps in Nazi Germany. So he survived the Nazi Holocaust. And from that emerged a body of work that stands as a message to us as a species about about who we can become if we are unwilling to face the fears and underlying forces that shape us, and also who we can become if we're willing to stand and witness. And Ariel was Eli's student. He apprenticed with and studied with And as the founder of the Witness Institute, carries on that lineage of helping people remember where we come from and what we've been through and our capacity to sit with and see each other across boundaries that might divide us so that we can live in a world that is awake to the hurt and the suffering but that allows us to communicate and be in dialogue and disagree well so that we can learn and grow as opposed to fight and destroy. 
So it was just so wonderful to be with Ariel today and to be in conversation with the many identities he holds, the creative, spiritual, artistic, educational, religious, all the many hats that he wears. And he brings all of them in a wonderfully playful and discursive and exploratory way that so fits with the spirit of this podcast, The Wonder Dome. So you can learn more about, uh, after listening to this conversation, if you want to learn more about Ariel's work and his his writings, you can go to arielberger.com. You can also go to witnessinstitute.org. Um, and I hope that you do, because I, for one, want to live in the kind of world that Ariel and his colleagues and his mentors and his students his community members are helping to imagine for us. He also did a wonderful drawing both during our conversation and after inspired by it that we'll share on our webpage at the mindful coach backslash the wonder dome. And he shared a piece of music, which you are hearing now underneath the intro and which will include its entirety at the end of this conversation. So, Let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Ariel has for us. Ariel, welcome. Thank you. It's really fun to be here with you. And as many of my listeners will know, I often have the good fortune of spending at least a little bit of time with my guests before we start recording. But you and I had what was supposed to be a brief 30-minute uh, conversation that I think unfolded into 45 minutes or more, and we had to cut short because you had another commitment. And that was a few months ago, but I left that conversation just uh, so energized and so alive to life's possibilities. Um, so I'm really excited to have you back here and to the extent that we're able, touch into some of the the energy we've already started to create together in our previous conversations. Yeah, I felt the same way. There were a lot of a lot of surprising resonances beyond beyond what usually happens in quick check in conversations about doing a podcast together. And um, and I think it was Parker Palmer who connected us in the first place, right? That's right. So, yes. So I want to I want to just name him with tremendous gratitude for, mm. in general and specifically for this connection. Mm. Yeah, he is um, been his writing and teachings have been sort of a men mentorship at a distance from me. And when he said yes to coming on the show, there's a part of me that was kind of like fanboying out the whole time, but just also like so lovely to meet someone who who walks his walk as best as he's able with a lot of authenticity and and grace. And when I asked him, you know. Parker, I'd love, there, I'd love to just get your thoughts on who else might come on the show. You were one of the first people he mentioned. So that was like another, I was like, oh, okay, I haven't heard of Ariel or his work before, but really excited to now. So I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for him. And I had a new thought about Parker the other day, actually. Oh, yeah, let's play with that. So out of the blue, I was, I was thinking about, you know, in, in um, Eastern European, in many cultures, but in Eastern European Jewish life, in particular, there's there's a community figure known as the matchmaker, and <laughs> many people know many people know matchmaker. Matchmaker, make me a match from Fiddler on the Roof or whatever. It was actually a very important role in 
in that in those societies, um, helping people connect and build new homes together. Mm. I, I suddenly had this thought because Parker is a matchmaker in that sense as well, connecting us and introducing me to some great, really great friends and colleagues. Some of the, the people I've been most excited to connect with over the last several years. And that's really beautiful. But I had this new thought that when I read Parker's books and when I have conversations with him, especially books like Let Your Life Speak, mm. which I just so deeply recommend to anybody listening. It's such an honest, open transparent book. About, it's not an uh, understatement to say that that book changed the course of my life. And mm. Maybe we'll circle to that, but I just wanted to name I, it. I want to hear that. I want to hear yeah. about that. I've come back to it several times. Um, so the flash that I had was that Parker is a matchmaker between people and reality. Mm. The mm. honesty, the honest truth mm. of reality mm. with, with real openness and transparency, the way he writes about his own experience is just, it's, it gives permission for me as a reader. And I think for anyone who reads his books to accept the reality of my life as it is. And that's mm. the best starting point for making any sort of change or growth. So, so he's a matchmaker in that sense too. And, and um, that's where he, he, his voice is one of the places I find myself going whenever I'm feeling a bit out of touch with reality or I'm, caught up in my imagination, whether it's um, an excess of idealism or avoidance or being overwhelmed. And when I just, I touch his words and I get back to baseline reality. I'm sure he, I sense you would probably really receive that graciously as a, as a powerful compliment of his gifts. And if you don't tell him that directly, we'll make sure he listens to you say it here because I, that feels so true to me. And as you name the importance and power of being connected to reality, there's a part of me that sort of spins off into my experience of uh, what we might have once called our common life, but which which now feels like a kind of sort of many faceted, uh, foggy, ambiguous, confusing, often un, like there doesn't seem to be much shared in common. I, I, I look out at that kind of our, the landscape of what we might call America right now and, and the public sphere and the common sphere. And I, I encounter a lot of disconnection with reality there and, and ways that disconnect me from reality. And I just wonder without us going down an, a sort of punditry rabbit hole about the state of the world right now, maybe the question I want to ask is what's important to you, you, Ariel, you and your work, you as you look out in the world in being connected to reality as it is? What's important to you about that? Well, first of all, it, it is the only thing we truly have. And and so I think it, I think it really comes down to a, a fundamental shift in how we think about growth and, and change. And this is, this is something that many spiritual teachers and, and depth psychologists have spoken about. Um, the, the sense in which really in order to change anything, we first have to come from a place of truth and acceptance of what is. Um, and I think we are well-practiced in our society in this moment at avoiding reality. Um, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of tenderness. We're, we're seeing a lot of suffering. We're, we're suffering ourselves. Um, 
acute kinds of suffering, but also the the slow and more subtle kinds of suffering in the form of loneliness and disconnection that so many people are are struggling with, and 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 so many young people in particular, and that I know and and know of, and so we're very used to checking out, and it's kind of like what do we do when we're when we feel overwhelmed by life or when we feel feelings that we can't quite process i mean that is one definition of trauma is it's unintegrated experience mm. Mm. we experience something that's too big to process so mm. a lot of us are experiencing some sort of i don't want to compare levels of trauma or compare experiences of suffering but some level of difficulty with integrating our experience which which pushes us to avoidance and you know binge watching and stuff like that whatever habitual things can can help us to armor up against our feelings i think that's really kind of an epidemic now and so coming to terms with reality turning to face reality um accepting accepting what is what i find around me and within me now is the starting point for any sort of any sort of process of growth mm. or change or aspiration. Mm. Mm. I'm in touch with um, a thread that we started to pull on before we recorded, which is uh, your artistic identity. And uh, specifically, I might even share this uh, in the show notes, but you did this really in our last conversation you asked me a bit about my journey and I shared it as best as I could in that moment and and then you were like, Hey, check this out. And you texted me a picture of a drawing that you had made while we were talking. And it was just so awesome. I was like, wow, this, this bit of uh, what some people might chalk up to fantasia, fantasy, unreality, this bit of imaginative expression that came through you as we spoke actually for me deepens my connection to the moment, to what we were talking about, to you and made me even more excited to have you on the show. And, and so I would love to explore that. Like there is, in my experience, there is a, an understanding of art in our culture and imagination and creativity as in our culture as a, at best, a kind of nice decoration to sort of trim the shelves of civilization with and kind of at worst, a distraction from the urgent, important stuff, uh, or, or maybe even at worse than at worst, like kind of not a, a complete unawareness of the beauty that's present in that kind of imaginative creativity. And, um, you know, my sense is that that's a real sort of tragedy of our common space that, uh, that, that we miss that imaginative connection to reality. And there's kind of a paradox there, right? Like right. there's something, about it being imagination and quote unquote, not real, that can feel confusing. And so I want to just kind of pass that, like lob that back to you as you connect to your identity as an artist and you connect to this insight that connecting to reality matters. How do you hold, hold those, those together? I love that. Such a great and deep question. And I loved hearing your story, which is so much about the impact of, of fantasy and science fiction on your own formation and open and, and opening up to deeper reality, deeper understandings of reality, deeper experience. And that was very much my experience as a young person also. I think that is very much the function of myth, of, of ancient myth and, and of art. Art can, art can cover and it can also reveal. 
Mm. So I mm. think of I think of Soviet era propaganda art, you know, which is sort of in the service of a a, a very um, a carefully designed, deliberate political message. Um, and then I think about um, Jackson Pollock um, revealing a, a different way of relating to the process of art making and the experience of life as chaotic and beautiful, and, and so. Um, it is a paradox, and I think it's an important one for us to consider nowadays because it's true. It's we, we don't really honor, as a, as a society in general, we don't really honor or take seriously the role of the arts in the way that we could. Um, it's the often the first thing to get cut in schools when they have to cut something mm-hmm. um, for funding mm-hmm. reasons. Um, it's seen as a as a nice um, a nice extra, as you said, decoration or something like that, and. I think the, I think the the heart of the paradox is that the reality that we often buy into, and that we see on the surface of things, is only one very narrow sliver of the reality that we're experiencing at any moment. And even before we get to mysticism or metaphysics or anything like that, just the fact that right now there are things happening in, in your body at a cellular level, Mm. at a Mm. mitochondrial level that you're not consciously aware of, but that are absolutely essential for the functioning and continued health of your body. Um, Just that, or, or just, or just the thought that I've discovered that my, my children who are all very unique, different people looking back, I can see how they were themselves from the moment they were born. Mm. I, c- I can see that identity of, of identity, of the, 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 the consistency of their identities over time. And so the question that comes up for me is like, where did that come from? When did you become you? You know, you were, you were, a, you were, a, you were a couple of cells and then there was some cell division. At some point in that process, you became someone recognizably individual how mm. how the how the hell does that happen I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just shocking those those kinds of things are they point us in the direction of mystery and and so the way that fantasy and imagination can open us up to possibility actually is i think leads us to a more accurate way of mm. inter- interfacing with reality than limiting everything to what's quantifiable mm. Mm. I'm thinking of moments where either in my experiencing of art or for me, my art primarily comes through in writing and, in, and sometimes in music, there are these moments and I can't predict when they're going to come and I generally can't force them to come, but when they come, there's a sense of um, truth and rightness. Like it's like, it's like my whole body just feels like it aligned almost as if, if I were to speak kind of fantastically, like all of the cells started doing something at the same time that, you know, maybe that is happening, right? Like there's something like, we're just like, whew, there's this click and, and I feel spacious and I feel kind of almost in awe, almost sort of humbled by the beauty in front of me. And it feels closer to truth than uh, just watching like a popcorn film. That's fun. And then it's over and, and I forget about it. Right. Yeah, like as an example. Totally. I have those experiences too. I think it's, I think it's real. And I think it's also in a moment like this in our, in our world, which is facing clear, clear, multi-layered crisis. Um, 
and it's clear it's not we can't avoid it anymore. It's clear that we're in we're in a civilization altering series of events right now, um, and it affects us on every level on the personal, the interpersonal, societal, global levels. It's very clear in, in our face. So, what's happening in response is people are jumping to let's let's suggest solutions, mm. let's argue mm. about solutions. But there's there is another process, and that's obviously that's important. But there's another process that can happen in in the interstices between those, you know, conversations about policy, those practical conversations, and and those conversations are really imaginative and playful and um, weird in the, in the <laughs> best sense. You know, like like w- you you mentioned earlier that we've you didn't use this exact language, but kind of we've lost the commons. We've lost mm. we've lost touch with the commons, and we're we're dealing with a lot of isolation. So when I was talking to you in that other conversation we had, and I was doodling, and and then you shared your story, and I realized that the drawing seemed to be somehow connected very deeply to what you were sharing. But I didn't I hadn't heard your story yet when I was drawing it. That's why I was so excited to share it with you. So. So I don't know, I, I'm not making claims about what actually happens in moments like that, but I do think it's really helpful to think about what would it look like for us to develop telepathy now and and to develop a kind of underground telepathic commons where we're connecting on intuitive and artistic levels beyond words mm. and beyond ideology mm. and um, and beyond physical shared space, even though if we, we need that also. You know what would it look like to develop those things, and that's that's a way in which things like science fiction and fantasy and imagination and myth can really help us to push our to push our our sense of possibility beyond the limited menu that's often offered mm. to us. Mm. Mm. I think we have to expand that menu right now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm a, uh, like there are so many ways in which I'm a um, I'm a hell yes to that, but I also want to speak to like the. I can imagine and I and I see even parts of me go like, well, why like what what? Why would we do that? What I don't understand. That reject that. That it's too weird. It's too you're using words that don't quite land to me, or that like telepathy, isn't that kind of like a weird unsolved mysteries kind of like, <laughs> you know, can't like so like I can sort of notice that. And what I am hearing from you is an invitation to kind of slow down and go, well, wait a minute. There's a thing that happens, just for instance, between Andy and I, where, where somehow I created a piece of art that just minutes later, when Andy shared a piece of his biography, felt there was that click that like, so I don't know what happened there, but I do know that one description of that is a is like there's some connection that we weren't conscious of that manifested. Yeah, and I have that inner voice also of super super rationalistic. We're, we're that's the very much the culture and tradition we live in. A lot of our job right now, I think, is to help translate those weird, alternative, funky things that require real serious vetting because there is a lot of there's also weird stuff that's just not helpful and that's you know basically misinformation and counterfactual yeah. Yeah. anti-scientific stuff but but there are things there are places where we know that our we know that our existence is deeper than the the portrait of our existence that we see on in media 
most of the time. And we also know that many cultures, many indigenous cultures and non-modern or pre-modern or non-Western or whatever cultures have, have this kind of language. They don't use the word telepathy, but they, they use the word dream time or you know, other, other ways of indicating that there are other kinds of capacities and experiences. And so part of our job, I think, is to translate that and, and to, to help bridge the gap between our legitimate and important need for grounded reasoning and factual reasoning, critically important right now, mm. and, and, and deeper possibility and opening up to the sense of mystery, which is certainly a reality of our lives. I mean, go argue with your mitochondria. Mitochondria, as far as we know, migrated into the human body system as a separate mm. organism. Mm. That's that's mm. crazy. There's this. We are walking um, syntheses of two kinds of organisms. That's that's crazy. That itself is crazy. So, I mean, I think science points us in the direction of mystery, and religion and spirituality and myth also point us in the direction of mystery and have very different methodologies for the kinds of questions we ask. And we need all of that. But I'm making a case for uh, kind of opening up and softening exactly in response to that reaction that we often have, that I often have, and I know many of us have, in, in reaction, in response to the things that feel um, weird or, or woo-woo. I mean, I think we have to consider those things with yes. with a settled mind and, and some yes. openness. And there are some gifts hiding in there. And the fact of the matter is, this is so urgent for me because it seems to me that the world looks the way it looks because we have operated from a certain place and a certain operating system for centuries. And so if we're going to shape a better world, a deeper world, a more compassionate world, a more thoughtful, reflective world, um, a more joyful and resilient world, we're going to have to open up to other things that are beyond our comfort zone, whatever direction that that takes us, whether it's deeper science or deeper dive into myth and, and religious thought or poetry or anything else, we have to explore those things because the repertoire we're using, the toolbox we're using now is not mm. getting us where we mm. need to go. Mm. Mm. I want to maybe just underline one thing in particular, and so much of that resonates with me, but I'm particularly in touch with, um, you know, if I were to continue to listen to the part of me that wants to debate around this, it's sort of saying, well, like, like, okay, Andy, you said earlier, you didn't want to look at the kind of common situation, but go look and see how many people are caught up in conspiracy and caught up in, in seemingly wacky ideas about what's possible. How do you even parse all of that? Who's true and not true? And and then I sort of hear that part saying, so, so just cut it off because it's, 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 uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous is what this voice is saying. And I kind of look at that voice and go, the reason that all exists, the reason it's so wacky and disconnected is because we haven't actually created a common space for us to hold with that mystery. And as a result, we're seeing that urge just sort of pop out in all of these, um, ways. And, and somewhere in there, there might actually be some real deep need or, or opportunity for us if we, if we were, were to parse through the quote unquote wackiness. But also what I hear you saying is like, no, the reason it's wild out there is because we're not letting ourselves be wild in here. And if we could actually find a way to bring that back in while we stay in settled mind, we could discover new possibilities that simply we're going to miss if we keep trying to clamp down and control and, and tighten and narrow. 
I think that's a really brilliant insight. And, and I also think there, there's a whole, this conversation suggests the question or a series of questions about what specific tools and methodologies do we need to use when we're doing that kind of examination of the wild and the weird, mm, when we're yeah. challenging consensus reality. And, and I think it's really important to do that work and it's also important to set it up well. And so here's one helpful thing that, that for me, it's helpful at least, which is there's a real vast difference, I think, between two things, between defining, coming to a new hard and fast definition of reality that happens to be weird and wild. So like, no, the the they've lied to us this whole time. And actually the truth is the world is flat or whatever. <laughs> and, and on the other hand, opening up to a, a much more uh, open question oriented mm. appro- approach to all of this, which is sort of like, uh, consider the possibility. Do play with ideas and do thought exercises and experiments and see what what fruit it bears and Mm. test that against some core meta principles like does it lead to a more compassionate world or not Mm. i think i think Mm. there are some there are Mm. some for me at least there are some helpful um helpful ways of evaluating those directions and you know as as my teacher professor ellie wiesel spoke about very very often there's a vast difference between seeking answers and celebrating questions. And those who are really, really uncomfortable with uncertainty, which is all of us on on some level, and we're sort of desperate to find the next answer, the real truth of what's happening or the real real, um, conspiracy thinking or fanaticism in any context, you know, it comes from that search, that desperation for answers, that discomfort with questions. And um, he used to say a lot that, answers really represent the end of a conversation and questions represent the beginning of a conversation mm. and answers can divide us very easily because your your new definition of reality is different than mine and so we can't we can't sort of you know inhabit the same space or the same movement mm. Mm. but mm. but questions bring us together and i have questions about reality and telepathy and you know and and shamanism and dreams and art and poetry and human rights and the relationship between all of these things. And you have questions that are maybe different and complementary, and maybe there's some overlap and our questions can be in dialogue together. And there's nothing so dangerous about that. As long as we are clear, number one, to keep the question mark at the end of the sentence, even if it's small and subtle, to keep a little bit of openness Mm, and mm, tentativeness. And number two, to have some clarity about what are the meta principles we're going for. What what are the things against which we're measuring our new crazy ideas? You know, and, and I think <laughs> I think for me, one of them is one of them is kindness and compassion and empathy. And that's and others might have other you know others might emphasize the fierce search for justice and um, and dismantling systems of injustice. And I, I deeply honor and respect that. And I think you can actually have a wonderful series of dialogues between those those meta principles as as we often do in in the work that I'm doing nowadays but we have to be able to measure is this idea is this new formulation is this new question leading me towards again I'll quote professor Wiesel is it leading me towards a more human world or space or classroom or family life or whatever or is it leading me to a a, a more isolated objectifying kind of universe of discourse and 
that's how I'm going to know if my crazy, wacky idea is helpful and healthy or not. Mm, that is so beautiful. Thank you, Ariel. I'm really, um, I'm thinking of the, from Letters to a Young Poet, where Rilke writes something like living the questions. Actually, my, I think I want to find that quote, if you give me a second, because it yeah. feels so resonant. While you're looking, can I read a short poem that's on the same same topic, but a sort of different voice? Yes. So this is my favorite poem from Mary Oliver and one of my favorite poems of all time called The Man Who Has Many Answers. <laughs> great, great. And it goes, the man who has many answers is often found in the theaters of information where he offers graciously his deep findings. While the man who has only questions to comfort himself makes music. <laughs> and I live in that, I live in that place of, of needing comfort because I have so many questions and really all I have is questions. I need music and I need, I need the comfort of music. And there's something really honest about that. Um, I think she, she might even have had Rilke in mind when she wrote this. I'm not sure. Mm, mm, mm. Well, uh, Rilke writes to, to build on that. I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now. Perhaps, perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into an answer. So what would it look like to take those, the, the, the kind of disposition and perspective represented by those two quotes, the poem from Mary Oliver and the, and the letter from Rilke to a collective level <sighs> to think about that as a society and as, as a human species right now, we're all living in these questions. Um, how can we comfort ourselves with music? How can we, celebrate the questions and accept the lack of resolution, um, knowing that we're not ready for the, for the answers because we as a society and as a collective could not live them fully. Mm. Mm. What does that, what does that do to us? What would mm. that do to us? Mm. God, that's really powerful. I'm, I'm just in touch with, like, as you ask that question, there's a, sort of an image that's coming through to me, which is a group of people, people who might be angry at each other, who might have very different ideas about what the truth is. And, and it could almost be any group. I'm not, I'm not actually thinking of a specific group or topic, but rather there's just that energy in this group of people and they're in a room together. And the energy is like on the cusp of breaking down into battle, verbal, physical, whatever that is. And somehow someone in there or some subgroup in there has the inspiration, the intuition, the moment to just start singing. And, and, and the moment everyone hears their voice, there's a sort of freeze, a pause, a settling, a relaxing of the bodies. 
and a kind of like an almost like a waking up moment and almost kind of like shaking something off. And at least maybe at least for that, for that period of a minute or two where the person's singing, there is space enough to look and see another human being, not just the person who's singing, but actually yourself and the person you were about to go to battle with. And it's like right there, right at that space, then at least is the doorway to a space where these two groups who are both living an answer to a question they might not even be conscious of, which is like, how do we sustain our livelihoods? How do we survive on this planet? How do we maintain the integrity of our, our ancestral lineage? How do we, you know, we could keep going. There's all of these deep identity questions that, that play out in the form of combat that could instead play out in the form of inquiry. And so that's like that image comes through for me as you ask that question, what do we do with this at a collective level? So th- this might be another moment of telepathy. Um, I'm not sure, but we had that exact experience. Um, I've, I've spoken about this before publicly. We had a, we had a moment in the context of the, the work that I'm doing now with the Witness Institute. We had, we had a conversation, I guess it was about a year and a half ago now. And we, we hold something called the Witness Cafe, which is an open space for our fellows and our fellowship and our advisors. And it's completely unscripted and invariably astonishing the conversations and the encounters that happen. And there's a lot of diversity, political and ideological diversity in these groups. And there was one moment when it hit that place of real tension Mm -hmm. and it happened like four minutes to the hour. We were almost done and there wasn't enough time to really get into it. And the, the issues were real and the positions that were being expressed had deep, not only deep validity, but also deep emotional um, depth and trauma stuff connected to, to them. So it was it was the kind of thing that required a lot of real time to address. Mm-hmm. And we just mm-hmm. didn't have the time. So, so we sang for the last four minutes. Mm. Um, and, you know, I want to, I, I also, I also want to say that I started singing. I said something about how we don't have time to address this. Let's sing. And then we sang. And I, I did that because that was something that Elie Wiesel used to do very occasionally in the classroom where he taught for many years here in Boston, Boston university. There were moments when he would, it really seemed like we were approaching the end of language. We were getting into something Mm -hmm. that was so Mm -hmm. either so intense or so mysterious or so ineffable about the the implications of the Holocaust or questions about God and 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 justice and suffering or 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 the intensity of a student's experience that a student was sharing and he would shift very gently into song and he would just sing a song from his childhood and it was a different a completely different level of transmission and holding space that's an example of the bandwidth thing I was talking about earlier I think if everyone knew that we we had that in our toolkit we could we could sing mm-hmm. in difficult mm-hmm. moments mm-hmm. and and obviously there's a lot more we can we can consider dance and some of our fellows have spoken about the role of dance in healing trauma mm-hmm. that's something that's sort of mm-hmm. an edge an edge of our thinking right now is what's the role of dance in healing trauma trauma is an embodied reaction to unintegrated experience and dance is an embodied kind of freeing liberating softening of the of of those tight places um, 
there's so much that could help us right now. And that's why I think we need to be open to these alternative approaches. I also want to say, just for the sake of honesty, and, and this is really important, that we're living in a world that's facing very real challenges and issues. Yeah. Um, some of them are emergent, global, big challenges like the pandemic. Some of them are are human-driven injustices and issues of economic injustice and racism and anti-Semitism and other, other expressions of hatred and othering and all of that. Those things are real. And, and so there's a real kind of tension here between opening space for this kind of deeper practice or experimentation or exploration, which is which is so exciting to me and and so beautiful and healing. And I think it's so necessary. And on the other hand, the need to react quickly when things are happening in the world. And, and so one of the things we talk about a lot in our work, and it's a question, it's not an answer is how do we learn to both speed up and slow down? How do we learn to speed up our response time to things that really are staring us in the face and require our attention. The, the Uyghur situation in China right now, um, mm. as we as we are getting ready for the Olympics, which are being held in Beijing, you know what what do I need to be doing, and and what do I do now quickly? Not not spending months analyzing and considering, but there are people suffering profoundly and terribly and gratuitously at the hands of other human beings. I have to act quicker than I'm acting, mm. and mm. we have to act more quickly than we're acting. And on the other hand. And equally, and very much in tension with that principle, is the idea that in many situations, in many cases, people of goodwill act and intervene quickly without learning all the facts or getting deeply into the issues and end up end up making things worse. And yeah. you know, this is something I learned from from a student years ago in Professor Wiesel's class, a student who had we were learning, we were studying the Rwandan genocide in that class in 1994, the 1994 genocide. And a student, this was now in 2004 or five. And a student was talking about how she had organized a, a drive a food and a care drive to send packages to, to the camps in the Congo after the genocide. And as we were studying, we were reading Philip Gurevich's book on the Rwandan genocide, a really powerful, important mm. book about the lead up and, and the aftermath and the genocide itself the student discovered that the perpetrators of the genocide were actually in charge of most of the camps, most of the refugee camps after, after the genocide itself. So she realized she had sent, you know, a couple of thousand dollars worth of care package items to the perpetrators. Mm. And it was an Mm. honest mistake. There was no Mm. way she could have known that in the moment, but it, it really raised this question about the need, the need for deeper looks at and analyses of situations. And, getting in touch with people on the ground. And, you know, that whole epistemological challenge when we want to intervene in any small way and make the world better, you know, how do we make sure that we're making things better and not worse? That requires a lot of slowing down. So on the one hand, we have to speed up and get more aggressive and clear when we're seeing injustice. On the other hand, we have to really ask hard questions and have humility and reflection. How do we do both? Mm. How do we do both in mm. the same, you know, the same week-long or month-long period or in the same day mm. or as two two sides of a of a practice in our lives in general? It's not only about singing because it's nice. It's we need the song to deepen the space to go beyond our limited repertoire, which keeps tripping us up and we keep falling into these 
binary ideological arguments and, and polarized experiences. We need the song and we need the arts and we need the dance and we need, we need the, that weird factor. We need to consider and explore all of those things. We also need to, we need to solve problems quickly because there are people out there who need our help. That's a core tension, I think, for anyone who's really wanting at whatever level, whatever scale to make things better. Yeah. I really appreciate you speaking to that tension. There's so you're stirring up so much in me. So I need to like kind of see what feel I feel called to share or ask right now. There's a few things. I think one I want to name or actually just just it, for anyone who's tracking this, I had not heard you speak about that publicly. And I had not, I have I as I embarrassedly admit before we started recording, I haven't had a chance to read your book yet. So I didn't know that Professor Wiesel sang, and I didn't know that you had that experience of of meeting a moment of tension with 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 beauty. So I love that little synergy that emerged, and and what that sparked for you as you shared over the past few minutes. And um, I think I want to say three things, two of which are pretty brief, and maybe the other one is brief too. But the first. The first brief thing is that there's a way in which, and this is the this is the challenge, there's a way in which someone listening to us could either quickly discard because, oh, singing silly, did that solve anything? No. But then there's another way in which someone's listening to us could say, oh, I get it. So I just need to like, anytime there's a problem, if I start singing, it'll be fine. And it's, no, that's also not the case, right? Right. So what I hear you speaking to that I, that, so that's like the first thing is we're not, I don't think either of us are saying that there's actually an answer that we're not saying the answer is singing or the answer is dancing. We're saying the question is how do we be together in ways that allow for new possibilities to emerge? Correct. And important to say that the singing didn't solve anything, but it did, it did create space and opportunity for connection to extend into the next meeting. This wasn't a one shot. So part of this is also about how do we create circles of people who are exploring together over time in ways where we can build enough hospitality and respect that it's okay to to make mistakes and we're going to stay in it and we're going to try things and we're going to push ourselves beyond our comfort zones. We're going to try singing. We're going to try policy and, and, and debate and argumentation and conversations about data and we're going to dance and we're, but over time with the same, with a shared kind of commitment to a group of people, those small circles are, are important. And that was, that's important to fill in that context is important that it was not, it was not a one shot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you sort of underline that, what I think we're playing with that I hope people hear is as we inquire into this question, what, how might we show up in new ways together or maybe in ancient ways since since there's maybe an argument that song precedes language, but how might we show up in ways that facilitate new possibilities as opposed to continuing to produce the same outcomes that we, none of us actually seem to want. And yet we keep getting exactly. And uh, I'm just in touch with, as we play with that question together, as we attempt to live that question together, I'm in touch with this kind of, um, Bio Akamalafe, who is a guest who's going to, who I haven't released the episode yet, but he will be coming out soon. And if you don't know his work, he's, he's an amazing thinker. And he's, he has a mantra or a frame that speaks to, to the question we're both living with right now. And, and the mantra is the times are urgent. Let us slow down. The times are urgent. 
let us slow down. And um, when I hear him say that, the invitation I hear him is saying, it is and it is a version of what you and I are playing with. And, and the wonderful possibility that exists when we slow down in the face of urgency. And sometimes we simply don't have that choice. But, but to the extent we have the privilege and opportunity to slow down in the face of urgency is we get access to all of this bandwidth. And this is, I think, what you were speaking to earlier for uh, an idea or an intuition or an inspiration or even a solution to come through that all of the all of the kind of brute force linear sequential thinking we could muster on the problem has to date not been able to solve for right so 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 it's almost like i just want to say to the parts of myself and to the people who are really anchored and really skillful in the sort of more conventional and and very useful political scientific thinking to honor that 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 if you actually go close to any brilliant insight that even our greatest minds have had there is a lot of like you know um einstein spent a lot of time just like doing the math he did the work and his greatest breakthroughs came when he softened and opened and slowed down so that like that sort of paradox that that both can be present the urgency can be present and the slowness can be present and it's at that meeting that something else can can come through yeah, I think just to to put a a, a practical, uh, vivid point on it, um, in a relationship with a partner, or or a close friend, or a housemate, and, and you're dealing with all kinds of very practical issues like who who did the dishes last, and you know how do we make sure things are functioning, and um, resource issues and questions, all of those things are real, and at least with a with a partner or a spouse or a close friend, you don't want that to be the sum total of the relationship. And, and if it is, you're going to hit moments when it gets really difficult and the communication becomes very binary and, and troubled um, because you're, you're, you're dealing with limited resources and questions about that. And so there have to be moments in those relationships where we pause and slow down and say, well, mm-hmm. let's go deeper into, well, what's behind, let's just Take some time when we have the time. Mm. Let's make the time to ask questions like, "What do you What do you feel when you see the sink full of dishes? What comes up for you? And mm. what? Mm. How does that relate to your to your early experiences of home and your upbringing and early wounding and things like that? And you know, that's those questions. Or what's your dream for what this house could be, what this home could be and how it could function. And, and what are some steps we could take towards that? Or, or what helps you feel really seen and loved that? What can I, what are three things Mm. I can do? And I'll pick Mm. one that Mm. really can help you feel more Mm. taken care of here. Mm. You know, those kinds of conversations are, you can't say those are not practical. Those are the most practical, important and far reaching conversations we, we can have in relationships because they lead to real sustainable approaches and solutions to things like the dishes. But they can, from a, from a very, very concretizing, quantifying perspective, they can feel like they're extra, they're luxuries, you know, the dishes are waiting. And I think that's, that's um, in that context, it becomes more, much more clear, I think, that we need both. We need to get to yeah. the dishes. We need to have yeah. those deeper conversations. They're intimately related. Um, how how we do it, a lot of questions about how we set that up well, but it's clear to me at least that we need to make space for both in 
one-on-one relationships and also in these mm-hmm. larger mm-hmm. contexts. Such a such an elegant and useful example. Um, and it makes me think of something very different and and but just maybe one more piece to 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 bring in, which is I read a few years ago a book by Sebastian Younger called Tribes. And he talks about um one of these instances where miners got trapped in the mine. And I can't remember which instance it was, but there have been several, even just in the past decade, that some people listening might be familiar of like hearing a news story. And and there was a moment in when the mine collapses where the most useful way of being, which some of the miners had more access to, was a sort of very like kind of charge in, find a way out. Um, how do we like let's organize, let's take action, let's let's solve this? Because if we don't, we're going to be trapped in here. But at some point in this instance, that that approach exhausted itself. There was simply nothing the miners had within their capacity to get themselves by themselves out of the mine. They were literally trapped inside. And you could imagine, like, if you didn't know the story, you could imagine kind of a Lord of Flies scenario, you know, like things devolve and, 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 and people destroy each other because there's conflict and tension. But that's not what happened. What happened was that other of the miners who maybe, for whatever reason, didn't have as much access to that way of being or didn't have the disposition or just weren't the first person to jump in, started to step in and do the work of helping the group cohere as a group. The work of tending to people's wounds, of distributing the water, or the rationing the water they had and the food, the work of listening and asking questions and hearing stories of the loved ones who are up above ground and all of those things that um, allowed them to survive long enough for, some, for others to break through the surface and help mm-hmm. them get out. Mm-hmm. So that's just another example of this both end that I think I, I think you're evoking and that I'm really touched by, which is is so important as we as we navigate towards these big collective questions that we're wrestling with. Mm, that's such a powerful example and case study of of what exactly what we're talking about. You had three things. Did you get to all of them yet, or not yet? I shared bio's uh, uh, mantra. I talked about kind of the the paradox of like the both end now we've talked about that in a few different ways and i no longer remember what my third thing is so i'm going to let it go the third one you said might be less brief but it might be brief too if it comes back (laughs) if it comes back just jump in let me know you know what it was it was the sebastian younger piece that was the third thing and i had then so it did come back i just forgot it was my third thing (laughs) great great the cave piece. Yeah. Yeah. And then your dishes story brought me back to it. So I feel, I feel pretty complete around this and I'm noticing, which I'm not surprised given the energy you and I have been playing with, like, despite the amount of time we've had, we only have about nine minutes left, which is like, wow. how did that wow. happen? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> okay. this is not an uncommon uh, thing on the show, but this in, in particular, I'm really in touch with a of the the effervescence and sort of fluidity that we've been playing with. And um, I want to make sure we leave at least two or three minutes at the end. I know you've brought maybe something to share at the end with folks, but before we do that, I, I, I want to maybe take a moment at least to honor and acknowledge that we haven't had actually talked, talked much about um, one of the primary ways that you show up in the world. You've alluded to it and you've mentioned it, but is, is your work with the witness Institute. 
And, uh, and as I understand it, that, that work emerged out of what we might call your apprenticeship to, to Elie Wiesel as, as a student, as a teaching assistant, and then as kind of a, a, a beneficiary of his wisdom. And, and you produced a book out of that called Witness as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Witness Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom. Yeah. And I just wanted to connect a dot in case you weren't, but you spoke about Parker's gift for connecting people to reality as much as he connects them to each other. And, and when I think about, uh, about what that is to be with reality, like a word I might use to describe that is the, as the um, practice of witnessing. Mm. And I wonder how, how that lands with you as you, as you maybe say a bit more about, about your work and that space that you're in. Yeah. It's, it's such a powerful word that after, after long after, we decided on the title of the book, it started to, I had, I had several moments of realizing, oh, witness also means other things that are really important and, and relevant to these conversations. But it started really, um, I met Professor Wiesel when I was a teenager and um, he was, he was a, a, an extremely important person in my life as a teacher, mentor, um, the kind of person who I think all of us should be blessed to have who who believes in you when you're young and sees something in you and helps you see the possibility of of growing into a certain kind of wholeness with all the complexity and with the, with all the brokenness um of of self and world you know he was that person for me and and so so much to say about him but one of the things that was at the heart of his work you know he was a he survived the holocaust he he wrote the book Night, which if anyone hasn't read, you should get now and read as soon mm. as possible. Mm. Uh, it's his testimony, his memoir about what he experienced. And, and then he had, you know, several layers of crisis of hope and of faith over many years and found a way to live with tremendous hope and to not give up on humanity and to work to, to somehow transmute his experiences of darkness into ongoing powerful motivation to do good in the world, to stand up for people who are suffering in different parts of the world. He became a human rights activist and influenced presidents and prime ministers and mm, mm. United Nations to intervene in, in genocide and um, to name things that were happening in the world with greater accuracy and moral clarity and to reach for peace in places where there was war and to reach for um, solutions to hunger in places where so many places around the world where there's hunger. And so when he talked about all of this, when he talked about his, his life and his work, the most important thing that he emphasized was the power of memory. Hmm. And when he said the word memory, you heard, you kind of understood that he was saying it with a capital M. Mm. It was a sacred word for him. And, and what it meant was, in addition to the obvious, in addition to remembering information about the past, which is really important, and you know, certainly in the case of Holocaust memory, the memory of the facts of what happened not too long ago, we have a crisis in Holocaust memory. There, there are many, many people who cannot identify the word Auschwitz or cannot say what the Holocaust was. In this country and 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 around the world, especially among young people, we have a lot of work to do. And it it wasn't so long ago, mm. so there's something heartbreaking and mm. very disturbing about that. But in addition to that, 
memory is about for him is about encountering a story that changes you that you carry around with you so hearing a story of moral heroism or maybe even moral defeat you know these extreme moments of um crisis where people had choices to make and either stepped into a space of vulnerability and danger in order to rescue or hide Jewish victims during the Holocaust or in other cases similar stories in Rwanda or Darfur or people who were bystanders and chose to just kind of look the other way those stories especially the the really the powerful stories can really change us mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. really so really briefly i want to give an example of this just to make it real um so there's this i'll tell the shorter version of the story but um my son's my son went on a trip to um Poland with a group of teenagers to experience the history of what Jewish life was like until the Holocaust and to learn about the Holocaust itself and to visit the camps and to visit some of the places where there were centers of Jewish life vibrant Jewish life before the war and he had a a, a best friend on this trip and when they were in they were there for about 10 days and my son's friend left the program with one of the counselors for a day and quite mysteriously didn't tell anyone where he was going and then came back the next day or that evening and didn't really want to talk about where he had been hmm. but he told my son because they were best friends and i think my son probably bothered him a lot until he told him he finally <laughs> he finally told him the story he said he said you know my great grandparents were married a few weeks before the nazis invaded their town and they were deported to the camps and my grandmother my great grandmother was sent to a rabbit farm on the outskirts of the camp of the concentration camp the nazis had a rabbit farm and the rabbit farm was managed by a young polish man who saw that the jewish slave laborers were getting less food and lower quality food than the rabbits mm. so he started to sneak in and we know the world i i i say these words and there's so much grief and immensity mm. of like shock and outrage in hearing these stories i just i want to honor that but it happened and we need to know that it happened and he this young polish man snuck food into the jewish prisoners and was caught and was beaten by the nazis and did it again he kept sneaking food into the prisoners and at a certain point my son's friend's great grandmother cut her arm on a fence and the cut became infected and it wasn't a serious infection if you had antibiotics but if you were jewish in that time and place there was no way you were going to get antibiotics and the cut became really serious and she was facing mortal illness and certain death so the the young polish man mr misiunik saw this he saw that she was in very bad shape and so this is what he did he went to the same fence he cut his arm open on the fence and then he placed his wound on her wound so that his cut would get infected with her infection and he got infected and then he went to the nazis and he said look i'm one of your best managers i need antibiotics otherwise you're going to lose productivity they gave him antibiotics he shared it with her he saved her life my son's friend told my son i i went to visit Mr. Misiunik he's still alive he's living on the outskirts of Warsaw and i went 
to see him and to say thank you for my life. Mm. So just notice what happens in the body when you hear a story like this. What kind of what kind of positive wounding happens? What kind of re mm. slight adjustment to the nervous system happens? Mm. And my experience with this story, which my son told me just a, a year plus ago, um, my my experience is that I, I now carry this story with me, and when I walk down the street, I see someone who's homeless or hungry. I'm I'm less likely to turn away or ignore that person. I'm mm-hmm. more likely to see the humanity of that person mm-hmm. and to consider my responsibility because I'm carrying this story. So that's memory. That's the power of memory mm-hmm. for Elie Wiesel. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was teaching in all of his teaching and writing and lecturing and traveling and speaking to presidents and speaking to students. And so the word witness is really about the transmission of memory because he taught us that listening to a witness makes you a witness. If you hear one of these stories, you now have a responsibility to carry the story. And and you also, that responsibility, this is the inverse of the Spider-Man principle, with great responsibility comes great power. When you take Mm. responsibility, Mm. you suddenly find Mm. you have Mm. power you didn't know you had Mm. to act, to be clear, to be brave, to overcome your limitations, whatever they are of fear or of self-centeredness or all the things that we all struggle with, we have a little more power to do the right thing, or at least, at least to commit unconditionally that over the course of my lifetime, I'm always going to remain engaged in these questions of how to get better at doing this kind of work. How am I going to be more and more human and humanizing in my interactions with people? How am I going to take more and more responsibility for my my BS and my, my, my patterns that cause me to, to be selfish or, or not truthful. And, and, and I have all of those things and we all carry these things. They're in our wiring, they're in our, you know, our destiny, our makeup, our, our karma, however you want to, our genetic inheritance, whatever you want to, however you want to put it. The real question is, am I fundamentally committed to turning towards those questions and wrestling mm-hmm. with those things or not? Or am I, mm-hmm. or am I mm-hmm. avoiding? And as someone who has had moments, extended moments in my life of avoidance of those questions, I know that these stories, it's almost like the stories are looking at me. I'm not, I'm not looking at the story. The story is looking at me and saying, what are you going to do now? And so I can't avoid in the same way that I still can avoid, but I can't avoid in the same to the same extent that I could before I carried that story and, and many other stories. And that is the the role of a witness is to share stories that break people's hearts open into new possibility. And that's, that's what professor Wiesel did his whole life. And that's what, um, that's what he really charged his students to do. And that's what we're trying to do with the witness Institute. So that's the word witness on one level. Thanks. Thank you, Ariel. That, uh, you could see, and maybe folks listening could hear a little bit, but that story really did touch me very deeply. And um, I don't have enough time to say all of the things I want to say about it. So I'll just simply say thank you. Uh, on one level, it feels, I asked you to come with a blessing or benediction and the telling of that story felt like a blessing, but I want to give you space as we arrive here to our, our end for now is if you want to, read the, the piece that you were thinking about reading as we close as kind of the final word for today, or if, or if you feel complete, then we can end here too. I think what I'd like to do is 
is just take a breath and a moment of silence to allow all of these all of these questions and all of the words to settle in and just to notice for anyone listening to notice what's going on for you right now and maybe maybe even if you feel called to do this to write down a few words um, or sentences that capture what you're feeling and maybe a question that you're mm. feeling feeling in response to this conversation because I know I know we we talked about a lot it's a lot of there's a lot of density there's a high these conversations about moral transformation and all of this stuff is these are high density conversations yes it's yes. important to to acknowledge that so I'd love to spend like you know 15 seconds in silence just to breathe together for everyone everyone here listening let's do that thanks Ariel Thank you. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for this gift of your, of your time and your teaching and your wisdom and your generosity of spirit and your creativity. Uh, thanks for the work you're doing in the world. I can't wait to read your book. And I can't wait at some point when the time is right to meet you in actual three dimensions as opposed to this approximation of it. Um, but until then, go well and, and go bravely. Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, I feel like we got as close as possible to um, three-dimensional meeting in this Zoom format. Thank you so much for your presence in this invitation. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever. <laughs>